I want to do three things in this hour. Number one, I want to deal with the definition of what the church is because the rapture will affect only church saints. Secondly, I want to deal with the rapture event. We'll look at three passages which describe the rapture event but says nothing about the timing of this event. Then thirdly, we'll discuss the timing of this, this event in connection with the tribulation. So in with the definition, two questions on your outline. First of all, what is the church? So turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Excuse me, that should be Colossians chapter 1. I do have a photographic memory, but I keep running out of film. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. Colossians 1 verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. So in this passage we learned that the church is the body of the Messiah, and the body of the Messiah is the church. Now the next question is, what does the church consist of? Let's now turn to the um, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Ephesians 2 verse 11. Remember that once ye the Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision, but that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that you are at that time separate from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Messiah Jesus, ye that once far off are made nigh in the blood of Messiah, for is our peace who made both one and broke down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, um, that he might create in himself of the two one new man, so making peace, and might reconcile them both into one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. He begins this paragraph pointing out that God had two ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles. The advantage of the Jewish identity is God had a covenantal relationship with the Jewish people. Notice in verse 12 the word covenant is plural because God made four eternal and unconditional covenants with the Jewish people. And we call these covenants, first of all, the Abrahamic covenant, secondly, the um, land covenant, thirdly, the Davidic covenant, and fourthly, the new covenant. And God's uh, blessings and uh, promises are mediated by means of these four covenants. At the same time, he points out God also made another covenant, which was the Mosaic covenant containing the commandments and the ordinances. Unlike the other four, this one was both conditional and temporary, and there are numerous purposes for the Mosaic covenant containing the Mosaic law. The one he focuses on here was to serve as a middle wall of partition to keep Gentiles as Gentiles away from enjoying the blessings of the Jewish covenants. 
And so the Gentiles were two things in connection with the covenants. First of all, they were far off, too far away to enjoy the benefits, and strangers from the covenants, foreigners that could not enjoy these benefits. When the Messiah died, he broke down this middle wall of partition. It was in verse 15, he broke it down so he might create in himself of the two, and in this context, what two? Jews and Gentiles. And then to make a, a one new man, and now we have a third entity that did not exist before, Messiah's death, resurrection, and ascension. A new entity. And it consists of all Jews who believe and all Gentiles who believe. And this one new man of verse 15 in verse 16 is referred to as the one body. And what he saw in Colossians 1.18, the one body is the church. So first of all, the church is the body of the Messiah. And secondly, it consists of all Jews who believe and all Gentiles who believe. Now the next question is, when did the church begin? And... Let's now turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This issue is important because in all different forms of replacement theology, they claim the church already existed in the Hebrew Bible, already existed in the Old Testament. Some begin the church with Adam, Others would prefer Abraham because they want to connect the church with those Jewish covenants. We can determine exactly when a specific ministry of the Spirit began. That will also tell us when the church began. So we go down to chapter 12 and verse 13 of 1 Corinthians. For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether bond or free all made to drink of one Spirit. So the way we enter this body is by means of spirit baptism. So without spirit baptism, there is no church. The church cannot exist apart from spirit baptism. So we can determine clearly exactly when the spirit baptism began. That will tell us when the church began. So now we turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The only gospel that mentions the church happens to be the gospel of Matthew. Because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, he's also tracing the consequences of Israel's rejection of the Messiah in Matthew chapters 12 and 13. And one of these consequences is the existence of the church. And therefore, Matthew is the only one that mentions the church of the, of the four gospels. So, and when he first mentions the church in Acts chapter, uh, I mean Matthew chapter 16, he uses the simple future tense, upon this rock I will build my church. What that shows is that spirit baptism was still future as of Matthew chapter 16. And now Acts chapter 1 verse 5 says, For John indeed baptized with water, but she shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So according to Acts 1.5, spirit baptism had not yet begun as of Acts 1.5. And therefore the church was still future as of Acts 1.5. Another question is, when does spirit baptism begin? The obvious answer initially would be chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 
That is the correct answer, but there's one small difficulty here. It does not mention spirit baptism. It mentions being filled by the Spirit, but being Spirit-filled is not the same as being Spirit-baptized. So how can we prove that Spirit baptism did begin in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4? We can prove this by going over to chapter 11, Acts 11. In chapter 10 of the book of Acts, we find um, God sending Peter to the house of Cornelius. As a result of his ministry, for the first time you have uncircumcised Gentiles believing and being baptized into the body of the Messiah. But furthermore, Peter also stays with them to do some discipleship work, which was fine. But furthermore, he sat down and even ate at the same table with these uh, uncircumcised Gentiles, which went contrary to the Jewish practice of that day. So when he went back to Jerusalem, the members of his own congregation attacked him for his actions. And in Acts 11, verse 2, we read, And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contend with him, saying, You went into men uncircumcised, and you did eat with them. And that was a Jewish no-no. And so to defend his actions in Acts 10, he does two things. He first of all tells them about the vision God gave him, and he could not be disobedient to the heavenly vision. But the second line of defense is based upon what the Messiah said in Acts 1.5. So skip down to verse um, 16, uh, verse 15, chapter 11, verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, even as on us at the beginning. Now, let's break the verse down. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And who are the them? the uncircumcised Gentiles of chapter 10 of the book of Acts. Even as in us, who are the us? The Jewish believers of the church of Jerusalem. And then at the beginning, and when in this book did the Spirit first fall upon the Jewish believers in Jerusalem? In Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. And now we read in verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but she shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What he does in verse 16 is quote what the Messiah said back in chapter 1, verse 5. And now putting verses 15 and 16 together, we learn, Acts 1, 5 was fulfilled when the Spirit first fell upon the Jewish believers, and that happened in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. So the church is the body of the Messiah, consisting of both Jewish and Gentile believers, and we enter the body by means of spirit baptism. And spirit baptism began in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, and so that is when the church began, because that's when spirit baptism first occurred. And so that's the way the church needs to be defined biblically. It's an entity that began in Acts 2 and will continue until whenever the rapture occurs. And now the second thing to deal with is the rapture of the church when those three passages that deal with the event, but says nothing about the timing of this event. Let's now turn to John chapter 14.
At this juncture, let me give you the, uh, the, my first rabbi story for this session. It's a story of a Catholic priest and a Jewish rabbi who often got together, talked about different things. But this occasion, the, the Catholic priest decided to show the rabbi how much more the priest has in rising in power and authority in Roman Catholicism, because there's a hierarchy. But in Judaism, there's no hierarchy, so rabbi is just a rabbi. So to try to impress the rabbi, he said, Rabbi, right now I'm only a common priest. But you know, someday I could become a bishop. Thinking that would impress the rabbi, but the rabbi simply shrugged his shoulder and says, well, that's nice. <laughs> so the priest was disappointed with that response, so he tried another tactic. Rabbi could someday become an archbishop. And again, the rabbi simply shrugged his shoulder and says, that's also nice. And now the priest is getting rather disappointed. And says, Rabbi could someday become a cardinal. And again, the rabbi shrugged his shoulder and says, that's also very nice. And now the priest is getting a bit upset. And finally says, Rabbi, I could someday become the Pope himself. And again, the rabbi shrugged his shoulder and says, that's nice. And now the priest is angry. And he asked the rabbi, what will it take for me to impress you? Do you expect me to become God himself? Rabbi again shrugged his shoulder and says, well, one of our boys made it. <laughs> John 14, this is the context of the discussions that, take, that takes place at the, what's called the Last Supper, but more correctly, the Last Passover. And suddenly he makes this declaration in verse 1, let, your not, let, not, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I come again. I receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In the midst of the Passover discussions, he makes this declaration that he will soon be leaving them for a longer period of time. And while he's away from them, he'll go to back to where he came from. He came from heaven, so therefore he'll go back to heaven. And while he's in heaven, he'll be preparing a place for them. Only when the place is fully prepared will he come for them to take them to where he was then going. And again, he was then going to heaven. And what we have here is a special promise of a special coming limited to believers to take them into heaven. The passage says nothing about the timing of this event, but promises a special coming of the Messiah, limited a coming for the believers only to take them to heaven. Our second passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4. 1 Thess chapter 4. Verse 13, First as 4, verse 13, We would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them that fall asleep, that she sorrow not, even as the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also that have fallen asleep in Jesus would God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive that are left unto the coming of the Lord shall in no wise precede them that have fallen asleep. 
The post-basic procedure, as we see from the Book of Acts, is to go to a new locality. The first place he would always go to is the synagogue to get the gospel out to the Jew first. And then um, from those who became believers among the Jews, and then moving on to Gentiles, and those became believers among the Gentiles, he would organize them into the local body. He would stay with them long enough to teach them the whole counsel of God, and then at the same time begin to appoint elders and deacons for these local congregations. And then he would leave to go to a new place just to begin the new process all over again. He was unable to complete the process in Thessalonica. We know from the book of Acts that he had, that because persecution broke out rather early, and he had to flee the city uh, rather earlier, and therefore many questions about things of the truth were not spoken of. It's obvious from this context that he taught them certain truths about the rapture. But one question that was not specifically answered is this. If a believer dies before the rapture, will he miss out on the benefits of the rapture? This was not merely a curiosity question for them because people died in that persecution. And since they died before the rapture occurs, therefore, will they miss out on the benefits of the rapture? And the point he wants to make in this passage is, not only will a dead believer not miss out on the benefits of the rapture, he will gain the, the benefit even before it affects any living believer. You don't have to be a believer very long to realize how fragmented the church has broken up into many facets over different doctrines. Now, nowadays, there are more than a thousand different Christian nominations around the world. And even within the broad denominations, you have several subdivisions. Probably the largest Protestant church in this country would be the Baptist church. We have more than one Baptist group. For a short list, we have, for example, the American Baptist, the Southern Baptist, the Conservative Baptist, the General Baptist, the, the Baptist Bible, then the Bible Baptist, the Free Will Baptist, the Reformed Baptist, and so on. Among the brethren, we have a similar division, though not as many. We have the Plymouth Brethren, the Grace Brethren, the Mennonite Brethren, the Open Brethren, the Closed Brethren. It's perfectly all right to be a member of any of these brethren groups, but there was one brethren denomination the Bible forbids anyone to join. That's the group he just mentioned in verse 13, where he says, I would not have you ignorant brethren. <laughs> So never join any church called the Church of the Ignorant Brethren. <laughs> the Bible forbids it right here. What he does not want them to be ignorant about is the correlation at the rapture between the dead saints and living saints. Having made the statement that we her life would not precede them, and notice he identifies himself with the living believers that might be alive at the time the rapture occurs which shows that he held that he held to a concept that rapture could come much er, very early in church history, and therefore we who are alive. So keep in mind, he identifies himself with those who might be involved in the rapture of the body. Then in verses 16 and 17, he gives us the chronological sequence of the rapture event. It will take place in seven successive stages. They follow each other very quickly will happen seven distinct stages. Number one, in verse 16, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. A day will come, he'll rise up where he now sits, at the right hand of God the Father, and enter this earth's atmosphere. 
Stage number two, with a shout. The Greek word for shout is a word that is used of a military commander giving some kind of an order for something to occur. And so he'll give a shout, he'll give an order for the rapture event to occur. Stage number three, with the voice of the archangel. There is only one archangel. His name is Michael. And in keeping with the military motif of those days, when the chief commander gave an order, it would be repeated by a sub-commander. And now the archangel Michael will, give the, will be the sub-commander, will repeat the order for the process to begin. Then will come the next stage, and the, with the sound of the trumpet. This continues the military motif, because after the a uh, sub-commander repeats the order of the chief commander. The person with the trumpet sound will give a specific sound, and the soldiers will know exactly how to respond based upon the sound of the trumpet. And then will come the um, fifth stage, the dead in Messiah shall rise first. My wife, uh, Mary Ann, was uh, raised as a Presbyterian. Her father was a Presbyterian minister who's part of a denomination that became very, very liberal and is very liberal to this day. And, uh, as, and um, he was one of the last of the Bible-believing members of that specific denomination. So because of so much liberalism, the church or denomination had become rather cold. So during my, uh, my, my trying to engage her, like my courtship of her, I, I once, I, more than once I told them, according to scripture, whenever the rapture occurs, the Presbyterians will get to go first, because it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. <laughs> and that may be why it took us seven years to finally agree to the wedding. <laughs> but here we see what he meant back in verse uh, 15. Before the rapture will occur any living believer, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Notice the phrase, in Christ. And Paul uses certain phrases in a very technical manner. In Jesus, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in him, in whom, in the Lord. These are technical terms for those who are baptized by the Spirit in their body. It shows that the rapture will occur, when it occurs, will only affect church saints. It will not include, for example, the saints who died before Acts 2, or like the Old Testament saints. They will, they will be resurrected at a different time in God's prophetic timetable. But the um, church saints will be resurrected as a unit. Then will come stage number six. Then we who are alive, that the left shall together with them be caught up in the clouds. When again, notice again, he identifies himself with those who are living. He anticipated the rapture could come in his own lifetime. And... Um, Notice only after the dead saints have been resurrected will living saints will be suddenly caught up or raptured. In our day, the teachings about the rapture is under a heavy attack. In many cases, it's mostly an attack on those who hold to a pre-trip view of the rapture. But now there are new elements claiming that the rapture itself is not a doctrine of scripture. The rapture itself, it never, it never is going to happen. And I run into these people in my travels, and they always use the same argument. You realize that the word rapture is not found anywhere in Scripture? And that's correct, as far as we know in English renderings. There's no word rapture found in any English Bible. But to be correct, no English word is found anywhere in the Bible. 
Not a one. The Bible was not given to us in English. It was given primarily Hebrew, secondly Greek, and thirdly Aramaic. And the issue is not whether a specific word is found in any English rendering, but what do we mean by that word? Now, these are people that come from mainland denominations, so my response to them is, do you happen to believe in the Trinity? And they always say yes. So why do you believe in the Trinity? Because that word is not found anywhere in Scripture. At least the Greek word for rapture, by the way, is found in this passage right here. But you won't find the word Trinity in, either in the Hebrew Bible or in the Aramaic parts of the Bible or in Greek. Because the issue is not, is the word itself found? The issue is, what do we mean by that word, and is what we mean by it found in Scripture? So what do we mean by the word Trinity? We believe there's only one God, but the Bible teaches that one God exists in three persons. And so scriptures will call the Father God, also the Son God, also the Spirit God, but that's not teach three gods, only one God. So what we've done is take this very biblical concept and give it a one-word title, Trinity or Triunity. The word is not found anywhere in scripture, but what we mean by that word is found in scripture. What do we mean by the word rapture? The Greek word for rapture is harpazo, H-A-R-P-I-Z-O, H-A-R-P-I-Z-O. It could be rendered either as caught up or raptured. You can use either rendering, and the both would be correct. Now we can go ahead and drop the word rapture and only use the term catching up. But if we change the word from rapture to catching up, we have not changed the content of the doctrine. What do we mean by the catching up? that someday the Messiah will come to the earth and they'll be resurrected dead believers and there'll be a sudden catching up of living believers to meet the Lord in the air. And so the concept is clearly found here, not only the concept, but the Greek word for rapture is also found in verse 17 as well. There will come stage number seven, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we evermore be with the Lord. So we shall meet the Lord in the air, and once we meet him, where do we go? In post-tribulationism, they teach, we'll meet him in the year, they make a U-turn and come back to the earth. That's not the promise of John 14. The promise is a special coming for the saints to take them up into heaven. So we meet him in the year, he will then take us up into heaven in keeping with John 14. So this passage gives us the chronological sequence of the rapture event, primarily to show that the dead believer will benefit before living believers do. But says nothing about the timing of this event. The third passage will be 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. The context is verses 15 through 58. 50 to 58. Verse 50. This I say, brethren, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. And the point he begins with is this. The kind of bodies we now have are not the kind of bodies with which we can enter into the eternal state. So for the dead believer whose body has suffered corruption, corruption must put on incorruption. For living believers, immortal bodies, mortality must put on immortality. And for the church saying, this, this change will occur when the rapture occurs. 
Now verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. The word mystery in Greek does not mean the same thing as it means in English. We call something a mystery in English. This is something we don't have an answer yet, a problem we don't have a solution for. But in Greek, it has a more technical term. It is something totally unrevealed in the Hebrew Bible, revealed for the first time in the New Testament. Whatever we can know by way of doctrines in the Hebrew Bible will never be referred to as a mystery. A mystery is something knowable only from the pages of the New Testament. Now, how do we derive with that definition? Keep your finger here. We'll come back to it momentarily. And let's, and let's turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verse 3. That, how that by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, does that term? As I wrote before you in few words, whereby when you read, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery, again the term, of Christ. Then notice his definition, which in other generations was not made known unto sons of men as it has now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Notice the mystery is something totally unrevealed in previous times or generations, only not being revealed by means of the New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. But this was something unknown previously. Let's skip down to verse 9. To make all men see what is the mystery, of the what is the dispensation of the mystery, which for ages has been hid in God, who created all things. So mystery has something that's been hid for ages for dispensations, only now being revealed for the first time to New Testament apostles and prophets. Now look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 25, Colossians 1, verse 25. Whereof I was made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which was given me to you were to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery, does that term again, which has been hid for ages and generations, but now has it been manifested to his saints. So again, a mystery is something previously unrevealed only not being revealed by the New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Altogether, there are eight divine mysteries in the New Testament and two satanic ones. One of these eight divine mysteries has to do with the doctrine of the rapture, which was something totally unknown, unrevealed anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. So back to verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We all shall not sleep, we shall all be changed. In the content of this ministry, not everybody is going to die. Everybody has to undergo some kind of a change. Not everybody is going to die. Then in verse 52, in a moment, the Greek word for moment is the source of English word, the word atom. In the atom of time, 
in the twinkling of an eye. And here he mentions the stages uh, four, five, and six that we saw in the Thessalonian epistles. So stage number four, the trumpet, for the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound. Then secondly, uh, that was the fourth stage, first stage, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And stage number six, and we, notice again, Paul puts himself in the first person, connecting with the saints that will be living. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality. And when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall come to pass the same that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, and so on to the end of the chapter. So what's going to happen is for the dead saint, whose body has suffered corruption, corruption puts on incorruption. For the living saints in mortal bodies, mortality puts on immortality. And, this, and the change is going to occur for the dead and the living whenever this event does finally occur. Now, those who hold to a post-tribulational theology claim that this passage tells us when the rapture will occur, and, it, and they base it upon, in verse 52, the last trump. They identify the last trump with the seventh trumpet of Revelation chapter 11. And by the way, both mid-trips and post-trips use the same argument. They disagree among themselves the timing of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And uh, I mentioned yesterday that um, over the years, people have identified the um, different presidents to be the Antichrist. I haven't seen yet a book written by somebody trying to prove that our new president happens to be the Antichrist. I suspect someone's going to write a book that way and call it The Last Trump. <laughs> now, now, here's, now, now here's what, that interpretation that this last trump is the seventh trumpet of Revelation simply could not be the basis because the book of um, Revelation had not yet been written. So when the Corinthian elders received this epistle, and read this verse, the last trump, is what they could not do. They could not raise the question, what in the world does Paul mean by the last trump? Pull out the book of Revelation, turn to chapter 11, say, well, this must be it. The book of Revelation would not be revealed until about 30 years or more after Corinthians is written. There was no knowledge of a doctrine of seven different trumpets, which only came with the writing of the book of Revelation. But, and notice Paul does not try to explain to them what he means by the last trump, showing he, would, he's, he, was, he knew that they, they would know what he's talking about. And this would be true because Corinth is a place he stayed for a long time. Plenty of time to teach the whole counsel of God. And one of the things he would have taught them have to do with the seven holy seasons of Leviticus chapter 23. And when Moses gave Leviticus 23, the purpose was not to provide all the details of the seven holy seasons of the Jewish calendar, but only to give us the chronological sequence by which these festivities would fall, because they'll be fulfilled in the same order in which they fall. And the way the, holy, the seven holy seasons are constructed, they fall into two separate cycles. The first cycle is the spring cycle, which contains the first form, 
The first four come close together within 50 days of each other, and they are fulfilled by the program of the first coming. So number one, the Feast of Passover is fulfilled by the death of the Messiah. Secondly, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is fulfilled by the offering of his sonless blood. Thirdly, the Feast of First Fruits is fulfilled by the resurrection of the Messiah. And the Feast of Weeks is fulfilled by the, by the birthday of the church. We then have a four-month break, then you come to the fourth cycle, which contains the last three. Last three fall even closer together, all within 15 days of each other, and they're fulfilled by the program of the second coming. And these are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles will be fulfilled by the Messianic Kingdom. Before that comes the, uh, the Day of Atonement, which will be fulfilled by the Tribulation, and this was National Atonement in the Tribulation. Before, those, before both of those comes the Feast of Trumpets. Already in this epistle, he's made several references to a number of these festivities. For example, go back to chapter 5 for a second. In chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, his, he dealt with the Feast of uh, Passover. In verse 8, he deals with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In chapters 11 through 14, he deals with the Feast of Weeks. And now early in chapter 15, notice in verses 20 to 23, 2023, he deals with the Feast of First Fruits. Already in this one epistle, he's dealt with several of these holy seasons. What he does in verses 50 to 58 is to do it one more time, but this time in connection with the Feast of Trumpets. So what does he mean by the last trump? If you go to any synagogue service, what you will hear on this occasion is the sound of 100 trumpet sounds. And they, these hundred trumpet sounds are of four different categories. Some are short, some are long, some are staccato, and the first 99 of these 100 trumpet sounds go back and forth between short, long, staccato, and so on. When you get to the sound number 100, it is the longest trumpet sound. It is called the Tekiyak Dola, meaning the great trumpet sound, which is also the last trumpet sound. And in Judaism, it symbolizes the resurrection of Israel in preparation for the Messianic Kingdom. The resurrection of Israel that will come with the coming of the Messiah, that will then, they will then enter in the resurrected states into the Messianic Kingdom. Now, Paul picks up that the Jewish motif that the Feast of Trumpets is connected with the resurrection, but he applies it more individual to church saints. And so he points out that in the, in the um, fulfillment of the last trump, which symbolizes resurrection, is supplied specifically to church saints. And so dead saints will be raised incorruptible, living saints will change to immortality. And therefore they both have the kind of body with which they can enter into the eternal order. So if this indicates anything about the timing of this event, would imply a pre-tribulational rapture, not mid- or post-tribulational rapture. But the main thrust is not dealing with the timing, but with the need to change the kind of body we now possess in light of the event that will precede us entering into the eternal state. Now let's go to page two on your outline. I guess no, you can stay with page one. Stay with page one. 
Let's do go to page two. Here you have the timing of the rapture event. And turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Let me begin by a simple observation, which is this. There's no, there's no passage under tribulation, of which there are many, including the New Testament, ever mentions the church in any tribulation context. That would not be unusual for the Hebrew Bible because the church is one of those mysteries that was not revealed in the Old Testament. But there are tribulation passages in the New Testament. Not one of those even once mentions the existence of the church, the existence of the body. And those who oppose tribulational scholars do admit this. And they admit that there is no passage of scripture that puts the church in any tribulation context. So what do they hold to it so strongly? Not because by their own admission there's a passage that clearly states it, but is their, but is their theology, which in most cases is replacement theology, that requires them to hold to a post-tribulational rapture because they fail to distinguish between the program of God for Israel and the program of God for the church. But the basic observation is they have to always use a backdoor approach to sneak us into tribulation, they use two different back doors. One door called the Israel door. And they use a syllogism as an argument. A syllogism has a major premise, minor premise, conclusion. And the major premise is that the church is the true Israel. The church is the true Israel. Minor premise, Israel is in the tribulation. Conclusion, therefore the church is in the tribulation. And the whole argument is based upon the validity of the major premise, the church is the new Israel. And in my dissertation that I did for New York University, uh, I, because it's on the topic of Israelology, what the Bible teaches about Israel theologically, I went through every New Testament passage that mentions the word Israel. It was mentioned exactly 73 times in the pages of the New Testament. Not once is it used of the church. It's used in two different ways, either Jewish people in general or Jewish believers in particular. But not once is it used of the church. And yet that is the major promise they build that argument. The second backdoor they like to use is that all saints are church saints. All saints are church saints. That's the major premise. Mind the premise? There are saints in the tribulation, and of course there are saints in the tribulation. Conclusion, the church must be in the tribulation. But it's also an argument based upon the correctness of the major premise. Are all saints church saints? And that's why we began the study that the uh, saints, that the church saints have a beginning origin, which is in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. So all believers who died before Acts 2, they are saints, but they are not church saints. And um, therefore, their whole argument here is also based upon the correctness of the major premise, but they haven't been able to prove the correctness of the major premise. So, just another keep in mind, so when somebody tries to prove mid-trip or post-trip, simply ask the question, can you show me anywhere that the Keilah, the Ecclesia, the church is mentioned anywhere 
in any tribulation context, in any passage, all the New Testament. And this they cannot do. Now here in Luke chapter 21, he's been describing the tribulation. But notice how he concludes in verse um, 35. For so shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of all the earth. Notice all inclusive. All the judgments in the preceding verses, it will come upon all them. Everybody on the earth will suffer consequences upon all the earth. So there's no way of escaping these judgments anywhere on the face of the earth. So if there is a way of escaping, it cannot be on the earth. And now look at verse 36. But watch ye at every season, making supplication, that ye may prevail to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. There is a way of escaping, but it can't be on the earth. The way of escaping is to stand before the Son of Man. And that's the result of the rapture. We now stand before the Son of Man. And the standing often emphasizes a evaluation or judgment or so on. And indeed, when we get caught up into heaven, we stand before the Son of Man because was the undergo the judgment of 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, the, seat, the judgment of the Bema, the judgment of the judgment seat. It'll be an evaluation of how we served the Lord since we believed. Determined, that will in turn determine our position and place in the Messianic Kingdom. But here's a clear, uh, a clear teaching about a preacher of rapture. Let's go to First Thessalonians chapter one. First Thess, chapter one. Look at verse 9. First has 1 verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how ye turned unto God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for a son from heaven, whom ye raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When the word wrath is used in connection with the wrath of God, it's used in two different senses. First of all, there's the present wrath of God against sin, as we find in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. The wrath of God is revealed, present tense, is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But the second way it is used is of the future wrath of God. Uh, which is now a common, most common term, is to call it the tribulation, great tribulation. And the future wrath of God, the wrath of the day of the Lord, is always a time of judgment shortly before the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. And believers are delivered from both kinds of wraths. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, Romans 5, 8 and 9, we've been delivered from the present wrath of God against sin, but then secondly, we are to be delivered from the future wrath of God. And notice here, he deals with the wrath to come, the future wrath to come. And this correlates well with the promise of John 14, verses 1 through 3. John 14, verses 1 through 3. That the believers, uh, that he's going to someday come for special coming for believers to take them to heaven. 
and another reason why it's coming to take them to heaven is to deliver them from the wrath to come. Sometimes we're accused of um, trying to escape persecution, but that's a misunderstanding of our position because the New Testament nowhere promises exemption from persecution. It promises that we shall be persecuted for the faith. We're not going to be delivered from persecution, but the promise is to be delivered from the wrath to come. And the wrath to come is going to fall upon those who follow, who have not believed, and will go into the tribulation. Let's go to chapter 5. Now, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, he described the rapture, which we spoke of earlier. But now in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he introduces a new topic. And verse 1 begins with English, two English words, but concerning, which reflects two Greek words, peri, P-E-R-I, and the word de, D-E. Peri, P-E-R-I, de, D-E. Not in all cases, but in most cases, when you see the very tech construction, it emphasizes he's now introducing a new topic. And if you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul goes from one topic to another, every time he introduced a new topic, English says but concerning, but in Greek it's peridam. So he's finished what he just spoke about, and here's a new topic he wants to deal with, with the problems of the Corinthian church. So having spoken about the rapture, chapter 5, verse 1, peridam, but concerning, introduces a new topic. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, we have no need that ought be written unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as the thief in the night. So notice the new topic is the day of the Lord, a doctrine well established in the pages of the Hebrew Bible, a period of special divine judgment preceding the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. And so the new topic is specifically the tribulation. In the following verses, he points out two classes of people, believers and unbelievers. He points out that the day of the Lord will, be, will come unexpectedly upon the unbeliever. And using imagery of the day of the Lord borrowed from um, Habakkuk and also from Joel, a time of blackness, a time of darkness, he's pointing out that when that time comes, it will, uh, suddenly, uh, it will come upon them suddenly, those who are not believers. Because unbelievers of the darkness and of the night, therefore they do not anticipate such an event, but it will hit them unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. But not overcome the believers, because in verse 5, the believers of the light and of the day. And it will not overcome them, because he says in verse 9, For God appointed us not unto wrath, but unto the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the antecedent of the wrath in verse 9 is the day of the Lord in verse 2. They've not been appointed to be in the time of the day of the Lord. And therefore, it will not overtake them as will overtake those who are unbelievers. As to how, uh, how it will not overtake them, he have explained that in the end of section of chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. They'll escape the street of time by means of the rapture. And the day of the Lord will not fall upon any church saints. It'll fall only upon those who are unbelievers and um, therefore will be here when the tribulation starts. Let's go to now Revelation chapter 3. 
He's addressing the church, and he says in chapter 3, verse 10, Because you did keep the word of my patience, I also keep you from the hour of trial, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Here he talks about a promise to them that because they are believers, the tribulation, the hour of trial, the time of trial is going to fall upon the whole world, but not fall upon them. Because God will keep them from the hour of trial, the hour of the timing of this event. Notice what he does not promise. He does not promise he'll keep the church safe in the tribulation. The promise is more specific, it'll keep them from the timing of it, from the very hour of it. Now those who oppose tribulationists, not all of them, but many of them claim that chapter 10 simply means God will keep the church safe in the tribulation. If that is what verse 10 means, something goes terribly haywire. Why? Because in chapter 6, saints are getting killed. Chapter 7, saints are getting killed. Chapter 11, saints are getting killed. Chapter 12, saints are getting killed. Chapter 13, saints are getting killed. Chapter 14, saints are getting killed. Chapter 17, saints are getting killed. And chapter 18, saints are getting killed. If chapter 3, verse 10 is making a promise God will keep the church safe in the tribulation, he's doing a terrible job of it. Saints are getting massacred all over the tribulation. And chapter 13 says that the beast will, uh, will war against the saints, and he will overcome them. They don't overcome him. The only way that these other passages can make sense in connection with chapter 3, verse 10, the audience of chapter 3, verse 10 are church saints, and the promise is limited to the church saints. Now, those who are saved after the rapture are the saints, but not church saints. And they don't have the same promise and will suffer the various consequences that will come upon humanity in the tribulation period. And uh, therefore, although the word church is mentioned frequently in the first three chapters, or was so indicated in chapters four and five, when you get to the main uh, passages on the tribulation, which is the big passages, chapter six to chapter 18, from chapter 6 to chapter 18, saints are mentioned frequently, never called church saints. It's not because John is reluctant to use the word church. He's used it heavily before, used it again heavily afterwards in chapters 19 to 22. But the saints in the tribulation are never referred to as church saints. And now let's go to chapter 19. Chapter 19. Now, chapter 19, verse 11, to the end of the chapter, he describes the details, or some of the details, of the second coming of the Messiah. But the first 10 verses, he describes events in heaven that come before the second coming. One of these events happens to be the marriage ceremony of the Lamb. Look at verse 6. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. Let us give the glory unto him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife had made herself ready. It was given unto her that she should array herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. One event in heaven before the actual second coming happens to be the marriage ceremony of the Lamb. And notice the marriage ceremony takes place in heaven. The groom, as we know from Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. The groom happens to be the Messiah, and the bride is the church. Furthermore, she didn't just now arrive into heaven when this ceremony occurs. Notice in verse 8, she's dressed in fine linen, bright and pure. He goes on to define what that symbol means for us. That is, the righteous acts of the saints. That is, the righteous acts of the saints. So not only is the church in heaven before the tribulation, she's in the, before the second coming rather, she's already in heaven for some time because it means that every member of the body of the Messiah has stood before the judgment seat of the Messiah. All the wood, hay, stubble has been burned away. All the gold, silver, precious stone has been purified. So all that is showing on the bright notice is the righteous acts of the saints. So not only is the rapture of the church, the homecoming of the bride, happens before the second coming, it's come well before the second coming, because the church has already individually stood before the judgment seat. So not only is the church in heaven before the second coming, the church is already in heaven before the tribulation actually starts. So, uh, so she's, and that's why she's been there for this lengthy period of time. So this is another clear statement of a pre-tribulational rapture. So by now you should notice I am both pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, I am pre-everything. I won't even eat post-toasties for breakfast to avoid any appearance of false teaching. Now let me mention, I've got 10 minutes, Boston Show is going to be able to cover this. Let me give you another line of evidence. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thess chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 introduces the theme of the chapter. Now we beseech you, brethren, touching the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, to the end that ye be not quickly shaken from your mind, nor be troubled, either by, the, by spirit or by word or by epistle, as from us, that the day of the Lord is just as hand. After he left the city of Thessalonica suddenly, and he could, not have, he could not have time to teach them all they needed to know about various doctrines of Scripture. Um, the, the Thessalonian church had sent them epistles with a list of questions, and both First and Second Thessalonians are responding to questions they had raised in their own letters to him. 
As we mentioned, it's obvious he taught them certain truths about the rapture, but he, but he didn't have time to discuss some specific issues, whether will a dead believer miss or not miss out on the benefits of the rapture. But now after he left, certain false teachers had come into the church and told them that they have, they have now entered or will be about to enter the day of the Lord. And again, the day of the Lord is a well-known doctrine throughout the Hebrew Bible, emphasizing a special divine judgment just preceding the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. And so in order to counteract these teachings, and some have even received epistles that claimed they written by Paul, but not, not written by him, that they were about to enter or even has just entered the day of the Lord, and that troubled them, because Paul clearly taught them in the first epistle that they will not enter the time of the day of the Lord. So he says in verse 3, Let no man be God in any wise, for it will not be. And now, we and now we have two elements. Number one, and in most English renderings, the falling away come first, and secondly, the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So two things have to precede. Now, the falling away, the Greek word is the word apostasia, A-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-A. A-P-O-S-T-I-S-I-A, apostasia. It simply means departure, a departure. It could mean either a physical departure or it could be a moral or spiritual departure, ethical departure. And most of the people in our circles, and this was my view for a while, that, the, that this is referring to a spiritual departure. And therefore, this refers to the departure from the faith by the church or the apostasy of the church. And, um, and the reason for holding that view is in the majority of the cases where this word is used, it does refer to some kind of a moral departure, not a physical one, in most cases. And from the standpoint of systematic theology, we have to take in all of the accounts the word is used far more frequently with a spiritual or moral departure than from a physical one. But as I was in more recent years challenged um, to limit it to more not a systematic theology, but a what we call a biblical theology where you deal with uh, the biblical theology of the writer and on the specific writings. And because first and second Thessalonians are written the same body of believers still responding to Christian diastom. The, and uh, he's already taught them in first Thess chapter 4 there'll be a rapture followed by chapter 5 the day of the Lord and so over the years I've become convinced that this word should be rendered in a physical sense a physical departure not a moral departure and if that's correct then this would add evidence to a pre-tribulational rapture he simply says until the apostasia the departure comes first giving no details and the first Thessalonians, he already gave the details. He doesn't have to elaborate. It's the same local bodies have written them to. And so I would take this to be a physical departure, and um, therefore it will be the rapture of the church. So before the day of the Lord can arrive, there must be the departure physically of the body, and then also the revelation of the man of sin before the day of the Lord could occur. This is an additional argument for the pre-tribulational rapture. And the point three, imminency. Not only in the Thessalonian epistle, we also noticed 
in the Corinthians 15 passage that whenever he describes the rapture, he includes himself not with the dead ones to be resurrected, but living ones to be caught up alive. And he anticipated it happening even in his time. The rapture could come at any point of time between right now and the start of the tribulation. The start of the tribulation will come only with the signing of the seven-year covenant. But the, um, this, and that's when the tribulation starts. The rapture will come sometime before that. We do not know when before. The rapture does not start the tribulation. It is the signing of the covenant that will start the tribulation. The rapture will come sometime before that. Rapture come any, at any point of time between right now and the signing of the covenant. We may see some more prophetic events that have transpired, like the birth of Israel, but we may not see any more prophetic events uh, taking place uh, because the rapture is imminent, can happen at any moment of time. Let me just say a couple of words about the two of the books on the back table. This book is actually a, um, a British version of my longer book, which was my doctorate dissertation, called Israelology, The Missing Link is Theology. And we've reached this to focus more on what was in chapter 10 of that book, what the Bible teaches about Israel, past, present, and future. And this deals with Israel theologically, both Israel's past, Israel's present, and Israel's future. But it focuses only prophecies concerning Israel. This book called The Footsteps of the Messiah, subtitle, A Study of the Sequence of Prophetic Events. This, quote, this includes all the prophecies of scripture and it gives you the chronological sequence of um, the prophetic events. So it's not limited to the future of Israel, though it covers that. There's also the future of the Gentiles and the future of the church. And so the, the body, the, the teachings about rapture will not be found in this book, but limits it to Israel. It is found in this book, which covers all the statements of scripture concerning Bible prophecy. And so that will be available to you on the table. Well, I'm done about two minutes early. So I'll tell you another rabbi story. And this, and this story is based upon the observation that Jewish people like to argue among themselves. There's a common saying among the Jews, which is, if you have two Jews together, you'll have three different opinions. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is the background to the story. And what happens in the synagogue service, at some point you stand up to recite the Shema. The Shema is the hero of Israel of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the story of a Jewish man who lived in a city with many synagogues, but because of a job change, he moved to a smaller community which had only one synagogue. So he joined the synagogue. When the first Sabbath came, he went to the service. When it came time to say the Shema, this big argument broke out about how do you say the Shema. One group says we say the Shema standing. This group says no, we say the Shema sitting. And the whole service continued to just argue how to say the Shema. He figured it was a bad set, it'll be better next week. So he went for the next service, and to once again, when it came time to say the Shema, all he did was have this big argument. Do you say it standing? Do you say it sitting? This continued for several Sabbaths. He finally got sick of it. So he went to see the president of the synagogue and asked him, isn't there an older member who may have been here when the when synagogue was first planted? 
Maybe the person remembers what is the first original tradition on how we say the Shema, standing and sitting. Let's simply agree what was the first tradition. We'll follow that tradition and quit arguing every week. And the president told them, you know, the rabbi began a synagogue is still living. He's in a Jewish old age home on the other side of town, so tell you what, go and talk to him and see what the first tradition was, and we agree whatever the first tradition was, we'll just follow that tradition. So he went to see the rabbi and says, Rabbi, I joined the synagogue you planted, but I gotta tell you, I'm very disappointed. Because every week we have the same argument, whether we say it's standing or sitting. So I came to ask you, what was the first tradition? Was it to say the, the, the Shema standing? Rabbi says, say the Shema standing? No, 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 no. That's not our tradition. If you say the Shema standing, you must all convert to Christianity. We don't serve the Shema standing. The man says, in that case, it must be to say the Shema sitting. Rabbi says, say the Shema sitting? No, 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 no. That's not our tradition. If you say the Shema sitting, you must all become Muslims. We don't say the Shema sitting. The man says, Rabbi, I'm confused. I came to ask you, what was the first tradition? Because every week we have the same argument. Do we say it's standing? Do we say it's sitting? Week after week we have big argument, a big fight. Rabbi says, now that's the tradition. (laughs) 